Hello. This is the Transformation of European Politics series. My name is Tiger Bushadi, and I am a political scientist at the University of Zurich. In this podcast series, I talk to other political scientists about a publication of theirs that can help us better understand the transformation of European politics in the past 20 years. We link these academic works to broader debates within political science, but also discuss how they relate to current political developments. In this episode, I talk to Tamar Mitz, who's assistant professor at the School of International and Public Affairs at Columbia University. We discussed her 2019 article, From Isolation to Radicalization, Anti-Muslim Hostility and Support for ISIS in the West, which was published in the American Political Science Review. The article investigates how anti-Muslim hostility fuels jihadi radicalization and stated support for ISIS in four Western European countries. It analyzes social media data in order to measure radicalization and locate ISIS supporters. The article demonstrates that ISIS support is higher, where radical right parties receive a higher share of the vote, and where more hate crimes against Muslims take place. In contrast, the number of asylum seekers is negatively correlated with the level of ISIS support. In addition to this, we discuss the effectiveness of measures of de-radicalization and patterns of radicalization among other groups, such as white supremacists and the extreme right. Social media plays an important role for many of the mechanisms discussed throughout the episode. If you want to know more about Tamar and her research, you can follow her on Twitter under at Tamamitz or visit her website. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Hi, Tamar. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, thank you for having me. So today we're going to talk about your 2019 article in the American Political Science Review, in which you investigate how jihadi radicalization is driven by anti-Muslim hostility in Western European countries. Before we talk about the article in more detail, I just wanted to ask you, what was the motivation for starting this project? Yeah, that's a great question. So I would say that from for many years, I was fascinated and really curious about the question of why would people, you know, become motivated or or believe in 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 hurting other people. Uh, it it started when I was a young child living in Israel, and uh, continued uh, through the time of my uh, PhD studies here in the United States. And uh, as I was thinking about these questions, kind of looking at you know people becoming more extreme, more radical across different ideologies, um, I wanted to study really can can we use data to answer this question. And uh, in particular, when I was doing my PhD uh, in the early 2010s, uh, this is when ISIS started uh, becoming really popular on social media platforms. And I saw that as an opportunity to study this question and understand what might, might make people join this movement uh, and become hateful for others and even commit violence against others. Mm -hmm. And as you've just mentioned, the, the project and also the, the article then focuses on the Islamic State, on ISIS. Just to give us a brief overview, could you give me a couple of bullet points and maybe a timeline on the development of ISIS, as this is an important context factor for the paper? Yes, for sure. So ISIS has been around for many years, uh, way before uh, I even wrote the paper. Uh, the group uh, started becoming popular in the late 2000s, um, really uh, kind of started becoming even more popular early 2010s. Uh, the Syrian civil war was a big factor for uh providing uh, popularity for the group and um and in particular uh what we have seen um as as the conflict in Syria and Iraq has progressed the group has been able to recruit a lot of supporters not only locally but also around the world and one of the most enabling factors for that has been uh social media and the internet so what we've seen in 2000 13, 14, 15 is this massive waves of foreign fighters. So these were recruits that uh, became radicalized and joined the group from around the world. And for this study in particular, I'm focusing on Western recruits, those who were 
following the group in countries like France and Germany and the UK and uh, and became convinced to to support the group and then uh, go to Syria to fight with it. Can you explain in a little more detail how this recruitment of foreign fighters worked or works and what the scale of it is? Sure, yeah. So foreign fighter recruitment is nothing new. It's been around for uh, many other conflicts decades ago. Uh, what is different this time um, is that this recruitment took place for many individuals uh, online. So even though older methods of uh, finding interested people and hooking them in uh, still still happened offline, of course, a lot of uh, what we have seen is this uh, rise in uh, appeal, starting with, you know, content posted on social media that is appealing or was appealing to uh, individuals who were seeking something. Again, the, the appeals varied uh, by different types of content. But then what we have seen happen constantly is that from this initial uh, pool, we have seen individuals becoming more and more engaged with, with groups like ISIS in this case, um, and then uh, start um, interacting more intensely with recruiters online, uh, moving to more encrypted fl platforms, and then even coordinating travel to the conflict uh, offline. So this has been a, a pattern we've seen a lot in, the, in recent years. And how many people are we talking about? We're talking here about thousands of uh, recruits in some countries uh, and tens of, tens of thousands around the world. It seems then that the, the social media really is something that ISIS has started using in a novel way. So that makes ISIS and, and, and this type of recruitment quite of unique, or you could call them, an, I don't know, an innovator in this direction. Would you agree with that? Yes, for sure. Um, I think so. The if you think of kind of look at the role of media uh, for recruitment in for militant groups, uh, media has been a vehicle for for groups for many years. But it definitely looked and started looking different uh, around the time that ISIS rose to in popularity. And and one of the innovations that the group has been really good at honestly was was the this this kind of borrowing uh techniques for marketing and social media marketing to uh to appeal to different types of people in different points in time so one of the things that social media allows anyone who wants to publicize to do pretty well is to target their advertising and distribute messages in in strategic points in time and that's something that ISIS has been particularly effective and also inspiring other groups to do the same. So you see very similar tactics used today by other groups uh, across different ideolo ideological um, motivations. Mm -hmm. And then if you look at the other side, so the people who become attracted, the people who get targeted by ISIS, is there a specific type of person that gets radicalized that way? The, so the fascinating part about this question is not at all. And many, many researchers over the years have kind of wanted to believe that there is a type, you know, a personality type, you know, a demographic, you know, you know, certain demographic characteristics that, um, that make somebody more likely to radicalize. But, but data shows us a study after study that this is not the case. And, uh, there are many different types of individuals across different types of, um, uh, characteristics, social characteristics, political convictions, gender, age, um, that are attracted to extremist groups. And, and one of the big puzzles is why and what makes this group so appealing, um, given that it seems to not be driven by a certain type of person that is tends to be attracted to those groups the most. Mm -hmm. And the great thing then about your paper, and let's focus on the, on, on the specific article for a second, is of course that you take a perspective that tries to focus much more on the context in which radicalization happens and what 
drives it, not from this perspective of, let's say, an individual characteristic or personality trait, but more a, a sociological approach, if you, if you so want. Can you summarize the, the main argument of the article and this connection between anti-Muslim hostility and jihadi radicalization for me? Yes, uh, thank you. That's exactly uh, right. So, uh, starting from this motivation and of evidence showing there is no, you know, particular person who is attracted, then another explanation could be okay. Maybe it's something about their life experience, the, the context in which they live. So, what this study is trying to do is to test a hypothesis, which says, uh, which is pretty intuitive if you think about it that uh, the appeal of groups like ISIS to try to attract uh, individuals to an online community, um, this kind of appeal could be more effective or more attractive in cases where somebody feels isolated, you know, in their life. So they don't have uh, a community that they feel like they belong to, or even if they have, um, they feel isolated from the broader community. So that's really what I tried to do in this study is to examine whether experiencing hostility in the offline world. So for example, imagine uh, walking in the street and being um, discriminated against or experiencing a hate crime because of your um, Muslim identity in this case, can that make somebody more um, aware or, or the message that ISIS has been disseminating that the West is against you, you should come to us? That was a very common theme. Does that kind of message become more appealing? So what I did in this study was to... Uh, to do something pretty innovative at the time of the study was to combine the online and the offline world through the geographic connection. So I had information on where individuals who were following ISIS on Twitter were located physically in the physical world. And then I matched that data with information on where we have seen the most anti-Muslim hostility, where we have seen the most hate crimes. And what I found was really, yes, there is a really strong positive correlation between uh, those contextual uh, contexts where there is more hate and discrimination and, uh, and support for ISIS. Mm -hmm. And we'll talk about the, uh, the really great empirical analysis in a second. Uh, just to focus on the mechanism for a second, uh, I was wondering about the, the isolation part of it. Because if I think of a cliché of someone who becomes radicalized, uh, right, who then decides to become a foreign fighter. I somehow picture someone who's well integrated in a certain type of environment that then radicalizes them. You take a different perspective, though. That's right. Yes. Yeah. So one of the common uh, cliches, like you mentioned, is that individuals who are radicalized tend to come mostly from, you know, particular areas or particular neighborhoods uh, where actually the Muslim community could be the majority. Uh, in fact, what I find in my study, which covers uh, thousands of locality localities and tens of thousands of individuals, is the opposite. <laughs> I find that those who are most supportive, become supportive of ISIS over the course of uh, this study covered several months of data was, um, was not those who were located in areas where there were a lot of, uh, immigrants or Muslim communities, but actually in areas where they're the least. And, uh, and also I found that, um, really the, the, the consistently across different country countries, across different data sources, that the areas where we've seen the most support for ISIS coming from were the areas where Muslims were, uh, targeted the most by, um, by natives or by, or by far right groups in Europe. So this is, I think, important evidence because it speaks against this, uh, this argument that, you know, this cliche that, that you just mentioned. Now, if we take these two factors, isolation on the one hand, and then this hostility on the other hand, what does that do with an individual and how does radicalization then play out? So I think it might vary in different contexts, but in the ISIS context, uh, what uh, both qualitative and my quantitative data point to is that uh, because the group was particularly effective at disseminating messages of inclusion, so you belong to us, we have a great community online, there's been a lot of uh, 
friendships that have been fostered via these networks. Um, if you look at the communications, there is a lot of uh, camaraderie and really love that has been disseminated in these networks. And um, and if you if you put that in a context of isolation in the physical world, you can you you might you know hypothesize, and that's what I'm trying to test in my study, is really. When, when somebody just feels like they do not belong in their offline world, they might find solace and, and happiness online. So I believe that this, in the, in the, in the context of ISIS Western recruits, that has been a story that, uh, we have seen happen, happening often, which is that the pool of the group was really, uh, appealing for people who felt like they did not belong in their own community, physical community or neighborhood or country. Then in the empirical analysis, uh, you already mentioned that you use social media as your main data source uh, to identify ISIS sympathizers and people who radicalize. How do you identify these people? Yeah, so that was a big challenge, actually. If you think of, uh, you know, everybody who uses social media and how many of those who use social media are actually supporting ISIS? That's a very small amount. So uh, to get at the sample, to get the data, what I did was to uh, use information uh, posted by a hacktivist group that has been collecting data on accounts that disseminated ISIS propaganda on Twitter. And what I did was to, essentially what they did was to post publicly accounts. They created this kind of blacklist of accounts that they published in order for uh, Twitter to suspend them. So they wanted to push the, the platform to say, hey, these are accounts are violating your terms of service. You need to suspend them. Now, because there was a, a time lag between the publication of these accounts and the time Twitter suspended these accounts, I was able to use that time window to pull out information on these accounts. So I, so as a result, the data essentially is, um, in, uh, it consists of information on about 15,000 propaganda disseminating accounts. Uh, so accounts who pr promoted the group on Twitter, as well as uh, a very, very long list of their followers. We're talking here about over uh, 1.6 million accounts that followed these uh, core accounts of 15,000 users. And then I pulled information on everything that I could that they did on Twitter publicly, which consisted of uh, whether they posted support for ISIS uh, or whether they uh, were flagged later as, as you know, propagating uh, the propaganda online or whether they were actually suspended from the platform. So there was a range of things I could observe uh, on these users that I used for this study to understand patterns of radicalization online. Mm -hmm. And then how do you measure the radicalization of them? So what I did, the, the first measure and the cleanest one, I would say, uh, or maybe the most intuitive one, uh, was just to look at what uh, those accounts posted. Uh, and in order to do that, I used uh, several machine learning uh, models that were able to detect pro-ISIS rhetoric across uh, several categories. And uh, I did that in different languages because these users posted both in English and in Arabic and uh, some in German and French. And um, and that, that was essentially the measure of whether they post uh, pro-ISIS tweets. But then other measures of radicalization were like I mentioned, uh, whether they were flagged as uh, disseminated propaganda or whether they were suspended from the platform. Mm -hmm. Most people probably have an idea of what machine learning is, some vague idea. And I don't know if it's always the correct idea of what machine learning actually does. But can you share with us the logic of how machine learning works in this context? So what does it do that helps you then to identify radicalization? Yeah, that's a great question. So in this context, the reason why I needed some computational methods was because of the size of the data. Um, if I had a lot of resources and a lot of research assistants uh, that speak uh, many different languages, I could just, you know, code myself, you know, whether a, a given post uh, expresses support for ISIS or not. But in this case, I had uh, in the full database, actually, I had over 100 million tweets. And that's obviously way too much for any human to do in a reasonable amount of time. So for that reason, I used machine learning models, uh, actually pretty simple models that classify tweets for whether or not they express pro-ISIS rhetoric based on training data that I collected. So training data 
our data that we um, label as humans first, and then we use the labeled data to train models to then detect what we wanted to detect. In my case, it was pro-ISIS tweets, uh, and the features that are used for prediction are the words. So in other words, these models were able to find tweets that express support for ISIS because they use particular kind of language um, that, that the models were detecting. So that's kind of a very high level intuitive uh, intuition what the models were doing. Can you give an example of uh, words or expressions that were very typical for what the, the algorithm then, then picked up? Yeah, so uh, I'll I'll mention the English once because we're speaking English right now. Uh, but we a lot of times there has been some mention of the group. Uh, it has not, has not always been the actual name. Uh, there were different uh, references for the group. Uh, and then uh, a pro-ISIS tweet commonly also included some sort of positive sentiment. Now, this is not coming from any sentiment dictionary or, you know, normal sentiment analysis. It was a very context-specific sentiment. So it could could have been endorsing what the group has been doing in Syria. Uh, it could have been talking about how wonderful the life of, uh, of fighters are, you know, and, and the friendship. So these kind of positive messages were picked up by the models. And then this is what... This is what then uh, we measured at a large scale. So for, for this context, the goal was to find individuals who post a lot of that content as opposed to individuals who do not or very or post very little of that kind of content. And then as a next step for your analysis, you need to know where people are. You need to geolocate them. Again, this is something that is not trivial because we don't just know for every Twitter user where they are the moment they tweet something or where they live. So what you did did you do to identify this? Yes, yeah, so that's that's a very good question. So if you if you you know you use uh, social media yourself uh, or you know people who use social media, most of us actually do not um, allow tech companies to know where we are. <laughs> in order to, to do that, we have to enable a feature that allows them to track our location uh, or disable it in some cases. Um, so so as a result of that, a lot of user, of Twitter users in this in the context of this study, but it's really true for other platforms as well, uh, just do not share location. Uh, and in order to, to analyze the test the hypothesis I wanted to test in this study, which is whether the local context is somehow linked to online behavior, I had to have uh, some measure of location. So what I did, uh, and, and just to say, I did not want to just rely on a very small percentage of those who did share location. So um, what I did was to draw on a very large literature that is rapidly developing in computer science to infer in the social media accounts locations uh, based on different types of data we have in the network. So in this particular case, I used uh, an algorithm that draws on network uh, network behaviors. So uh, I was able to infer through that algorithm uh, with some probability where uh, users are located. And I used that for their location, to, to measure their location. Then the main independent variable is a measure of anti-Muslim hostility. Right in the in the in the in the area of where people are. How do you how do you measure this? Yeah. So if you think of anti-Muslim hostility, it it could look at uh, it could look like different things, and in some cases it could be really hard to measure. How do you know if somebody is feeling isolated or not? Pretty difficult. So what I did here was to uh, create two different measures that I believe reflect that kind of sentiment in a, in a local context. The first one has been uh, voting for anti-immigrant, anti-Muslim parties in these countries at the local level. So I used public voting data for uh, parties like uh, Marine Le Pen's party in France or the AFD in Germany. And My assumption that in that that was in areas where we have a lot of voting for these parties uh, are likely to be more hostile to Muslims. And I also show uh, I use some survey data to show that there is in fact a very strong correlation between having anti-Muslim attitudes uh, and voting for these parties. 
And then the second measure, which maybe would be even more direct, um, I used data on hate crimes. And I had them only for the UK, and actually I have also for Germany, and I find the same pattern. So using hate crimes as a measure of hostility or or voting for anti-immigrant, anti-Muslim parties show the, exactly the same pattern, which is uh, what I just described. So in those areas is really where we find the most pro-ISIS support on Twitter. Mm -hmm. That was basically already my, my next question, and we foreshadowed it, of course, already. Uh, but can you summarize the, the findings then again for me? Yeah, so the paper finds, like I said, across different, in, uh, sorry, different dependent variables and different independent variables, the same pattern, which is that individuals who followed ISIS on Twitter and were located in areas that uh, are measured to be strongly hostile to Muslims were the areas uh, where those individuals who expressed the most support for ISIS were most likely to share the propaganda of the group in the time period of the study and also were most likely to be suspended uh, later, a few months later. So, so this illustrates this correlation between hostility and radicalization. And of course, because this is not a randomized evaluation, I'm not able to claim that this relationship is causal. But these are patterns that we were not able to measure before this kind of data became available. So it does suggest that this hypothesis might actually be, uh, be, be true in the real world. So more research is needed for, for that particular causal story. You also control then for, for a number of other factors in, in these regions. And again, we, we, you've mentioned already a little bit, but I wanted to come back to it because I think one of the really interesting findings then there is that the number of asylum seekers in that region is negatively correlated with radicalization, right? That's right. And uh, again, that speaks, uh, you know, another point of evidence for this argument that, you know, like the, there's this rhetoric sometimes that immigrants uh, are bringing more crime or more violence. But actually, my study shows that this is not the case if you if you look at uh, what individuals do online. So yeah, I, I, I use data on on uh, areas where there are more immigrants, areas where there are more asylum seekers. And the pattern was really striking. It, it, very, it was very clear that those who supported ISIS and, and you know, became attracted to the group were not coming from these areas, at least not in 2014 and 15. Mm -hmm. You mentioned the causal claims that you can make based on the story. And um, my reading is that you actually, right, you, you have more leverage on your causal story than just the, to say this is correlational because you also do a, a number of other in additional investigations and analyses. Can you, can you uh, elaborate those a little more? Yeah, sure. So one of the things uh, that I did uh, was to use the, the property of social media data that uh, is just simply high frequency data at the tweet level. So if you just look at when a Twitter post is being posted, you have information all the way to the second level. So it's like very, very granular on the time dimension. So what I did was, was to do a little exercise and see, okay, so if we do have um, you know, if this story is really true, then we would expect um, to see higher enthusiasm about ISIS after events that are triggering, could trigger that kind of uh, enthusiasm. So I used uh, uh, data on the exact timing of when uh, terrorist attacks perpetrated by the group took place in France um, and Belgium in 2015 and 16. And also I used the data on the exact timing of when uh, large anti-Muslim marches took place across Europe in early 2016. And what I did then was to see, okay, so how does the pro-ISIS rhetoric change right before and right after these events? And whether we do we see this difference across areas, you know, based on the level of anti-Muslim hostility? And what I found was this, again, the same pattern that uh, the, the most uh, rapid and uh, substantively large increase in support for ISIS after these events came from these the same areas. So so this is again this kind of uh, overtime dimension of the same pattern that just suggests that you know maybe there is something about these areas that that make groups like ISIS really attractive uh, for people. Mm -hmm. So your article specifically focuses on 
foreign fighters and their perspective on ISIS. Now, again, unfortunately, we're in a time in Europe where we've seen uh, a number of uh, terrorist attacks just last week in Vienna. And I was wondering if the type of radicalization that you study, if you'd say this is also the what's going on in, in, uh, with, uh, with potential or then with terrorists. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I think in, in a way it could be, although I must say, yes, the context has changed. Uh, also, the messaging that ISIS has been disseminating has also changed uh, from the time of the study to now. But if you, if you think about the mechanism, What again, kind of starting with the question that uh, motivated this whole study of why would somebody even go and hurt others? Why would they go and take uh, arms and, and, you know, physically harm others? Um, if you think of the trajectory of those perpetrators and you look at what happened to them over the course of time, uh, we don't have, I don't have the data. We need more, more information, but it could be that what pulled them, uh, in the first place, so if you, if you place my study kind of in the context of radicalization paths, if you will, uh, it kind of uh, is located in the beginning, right? So when people are beginning to engage with an ideology and beginning to become interested in it, um, it could be that these perpetrators became interested in, in, in this kind of ideology early on in the same way because of the same reasons that I find in the study. But then uh, what I do not study in this particular paper, but others have, have studied is and shown uh, mostly qualitatively, is that over time and higher engagement with, um, with, content, with content or with groups that advocate violence uh, makes individuals become more... Um, desensitized to 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 this idea of you know hurting others is bad or, or you know seeing violence is bad so you know it one story could be that yes it's the same mechanism we're just seeing something more down down the stream effects of this kind of uh pattern but it could also be some other story so i don't want to overclaim here that this is the same pattern uh but i think that uh that this idea that groups like ISIS try to capitalize on feeling of isolation and try to point to um, to events even just like happened in France a few weeks ago uh, around uh, the caricature to, to use that as as events that can activate uh, those same feelings and try to pull individuals to the group. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised if this didn't happen this time as well, at least for some individuals. We've now largely focused on one a one-way street in a way. That's the, the street of radicalization. And th this is what you've studied in this article. I know you've also done other research on the exactly opposite mechanism. So de-radicalization, attempts to de-radicalize people that you've studied. Can you tell me about these studies and your findings? Yes, for sure. Uh, so yeah, you can, you framed it really well. Um, so another part of the story is really what we have seen, uh, a lot recently is, is in the policy space in particular, uh, was efforts to de-radicalize. So, you know, if some content radicalizes online, maybe some content can de-radicalize. Or in the offline setting, you know, if some engagements make somebody more convinced that groups like ISIS are good, uh, maybe th some interventions can, um, show how they're bad right so so there's this like competing powers for uh for you know these recruits attention so what i did in in one study was to examine a context where these kind of interventions happened in the offline world uh this is a study that looks at united states uh supporters or isis supporters and what i did there was to use a similar methodology that combines the online activity to support isis or follow the group on twitter with uh, offline counter-extremism intervention that were um, led by the U.S. government. And what I did there was to look at how engagement with ISIS on Twitter looked like before and after counter-extremism events taking place on the ground uh, and kind of looking at how those who were in proximity to these events reacted online. And the really surprising finding, especially for those who believe that these interventions are really effective, Oh, I would just say we have no evidence at the moment about how much, how effective our counter extremism, extremism interventions are. Uh, it's very difficult to assess. But, uh, what I found was that 
those events actually drove ISIS sympathizers to what I call the online underground. Uh, so they essentially became more strategic on their public Twitter pro profiles. They uh, became uh, they essentially self-censored uh, all of their support for ISIS. They even changed how their profile appears. They changed uh, their profile pictures and the way they display their screen names. And at the same time, uh, these individuals encouraged their followers to join Telegram, which at that time has been a very popular platform, encrypted platform for uh, for the Islamic State. So <laughs> that's one study that shows, hey, you know, maybe we should pay attention uh, to the kind of consequences of these events uh, in the online world. And uh, yeah, and there's many other uh, others who now study how different online interventions work and whether they're effective or not. But evidence is still being uh, collected and analyzed. So bluntly put, these measures do not de-radicalize de people, but they just make them hide it better. Yes, that's what this study shows. Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. But could we say that something's already gained by having these thoughts and those attempts just less out there in the public? Do they? Is it then less likely that they infect more people, if you want to use that, that metaphor? Yeah, that's exactly the policy debate that I'm talking a lot about recently, both with my students and with colleagues. So basically what you say is this, we have like the kind of two big options. One, we can, you know, not intervene and let groups like ISIS and other extremist groups just, you know, populate social media platforms and disseminate the ideology and, you know, recruit members. Obviously, none of that, none of that is desirable. Uh, or the other option is to shut down their accounts or intervene in offline in a way that will make them aware of, you know, government surveillance, for example, and make them go to more closed networks that are less publicly observable. We can push them there. Uh, tech platforms have been doing that a lot in recent years to shut down accounts and, uh, and deplatform um, extremists. And then even though in the other option, even though you have uh, less, like you say, you know, less people are infected, less people are exposed, um, you kind of wonder what is happening in those more closed circles. And is there, a, should we worry whether that kind of more closed echo chamber could could lead individuals to become more violent. Now, we have some evidence uh, on some uh, attacks that already took place that were, were clearly linked to online activity in those closed forums, but we don't really know. Maybe maybe this is actually not that bad. So, and, you know, maybe it's better just to like push them away and that, you know, the reach is, is, is less wide in that way. And in fact, one of my new studies tries to understand that more systematically in the context of white supremacy extremists in the United States, where I'm studying what happens to individuals who hold accounts on two social media platforms simultaneously, and what happens to them on the more fringe platform when the mainstream platform takes down their, their account because they are too extreme. So evidence is still being collected and I'm still analyzing it, but the initial patterns do suggest that they become uh, more extreme in their rhetoric on the fringe platform after after being suspended from the mainstream. So, you know, this is kind of still an open question, but I think it's something we should pay attention to. I think we shouldn't ignore the the fact that we just displace extremists to another platform. Um, are we doing more harm than good? That's an open question. Mm -hmm. Hearing many of your accounts and now also where you just mentioned this new study. As someone who who, who researches the radical right and right also then reads uh, quite a bit about the extreme right, many of the mechanisms that you were elaborating sounded quite familiar to me from this right the other extremist group. Would you say those two groups in their processes of a recruitment and then b radicalization uh, at the at the individual level are comparable? Yeah, so I would say that in there, in many ways they are comparable, especially if you look at what is happening now, you know, with social media having, you know, being here. And so on, on the recruitment side, you, you do see a lot of parallels right now. And in fact, some even argue that, uh, white supremacy extremists are 
drawing on the tactics of the Islamic State uh, because it was so successful. So on that front, we do see a lot of similarities. I think where it becomes harder to, to really make the parallel or kind of say whether they're really the same is when we talk about the mechanism like the one I suggested in the paper, which argues that, you know, the social isolation uh, or experiencing hostility is what drives support for extremism. So, you know, in, the, in this context, I'm talking now about um, far-right extremists in the United States, for example, uh, a lot of the radicalization that we see here is not driven uh, so much by experiencing hate or experiencing hostility, but it's more from believing this story that um, the white race is under threat because of increased diversity. Uh, many times the, 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 the argument is that we have to fight, you have to join our group, uh, you know, that kind of recruitment messaging, because if we don't do something, then we will be extinct. So in a way, if you think of threat as similar to isolation, then you can have, you can see the parallel, but really the messaging and the context are quite different. Mm -hmm. Yes, I, I was immediately thinking of these similar types of threats or threat scenarios, but that target groups that are in a very different position, I guess, looking at, let's say, European countries, right? then the, the people that are targeted by a white supremacy, extreme right narrative are much more in a position of power um, and, and, and are in, in, in many cases even part of certain types of state structures, like let's say the police or the military, uh, in, in contrast to people who uh, turn to uh, then who radicalize uh, in, in, in a jihadi way. Uh, so uh, that that strikes me as a difference. Yes, I completely agree, and I think that 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 point that you mentioned uh, that recruits come from state structures or state institutions is really what makes uh, defining either line of you know where is somebody dangerous or not, or where somebody belongs to a group or not, much much harder to you know much harder to make this line or this separation. Uh, than what it was uh, in the case of ISIS just a few years ago. And you see that also in the current frontier of content moderation on social media, where it was on one hand with ISIS, it was real, or Al-Qaeda also, it was really easy to identify content that endorses these groups and, you know, has this nature, uh, you know, in terms of the rhetoric. But if you look at uh, far-right uh, extremists or groups that in endorse white supremacy, the 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 distinctions there are much harder so if you if you were to train a classifier you know a machine learning model to detect content that endorses white supremacy sometimes it's very very hard to detect because it could it could on one hand seem like a legitimate political ideology uh you know of some political parties but then there is this like fine bridge into content that endorses violence so I think it's it's challenging not only when we think about it conceptually, uh, it's also challenging on the operational level of how how do you define, how do you combat that kind of extremism? And I think this is also what makes it interesting to study. So again, bluntly put, summarizing what you just said, it's more difficult to detect white supremacists and members of extreme right groups that are radicalizing because elements of their discourse are much more prominent in the general discourse than elements of jihadi radicalization. Yes, that's, that's, that's exactly right. Okay, it's also a worrisome uh, finding, I would say, no? Yeah, and I think that um, it's it's you know on one hand you know it also comes to this idea of free speech, right? I I believe in free speech. I think everybody should be able to uh, to share their what they think with the world, and you know we all have different perspectives that are valuable. But when uh, you have uh, you know hate speech, uh, and that kind of intertwines with free speech in a way that is very hard to you know to disentangle uh this is where this dilemma becomes really uh really powerful and really important and i think more people should should be engaged with this kind of thinking of how do we promote liberal open uh societies but on the other hand not allowing 
extremists to kind of monopolize our rhetoric and, and kind of shift people's attention and then uh, in a way that can promote recruitment to to violent groups, right? And it's a really big challenge that we didn't see so much before, right? I mean, it definitely existed in some corners of the world, but uh, but not at the scale we're seeing now in Europe uh, and other, or other parts of the world. Mm-hmm. So we've already realized listening to you that social media plays a core role in your research. And that's not only as a data source for what you're doing, but also as a uh, potential driver of recruitment, radicalization, and so on. Would you say that today social media plays an essential role for the radicalization on the extreme right as well as for uh, for jihadi radicalization? I would say yes. I think these groups existed before and were recruiting members before for sure. But if you just think about the exponential reach <laughs> that they have by posting some some viral or you know potentially popular or you know piece of content um we have seen it happening over and over again is that those these platforms that you know could do and have done a lot of good in the world uh enable this kind of popularity and spread of the fringes of the extremes and the violent groups and um i do think that even though i can't uh prove that with quantitative data because we have uh, not a lot of data on before and after social media you know we have two time periods but uh but we but for somebody who has studied uh militant groups before social media has came has even become a thing uh you do see this empowerment and this uh this opportunity that these platforms are giving so so i think i i would say definitely yes and i would also add that if you think of counterterrorism as this kind of field of uh preventing violence against civilians uh we put it the most uh neutral way uh then um then what we're seeing now with uh with in our current world is that we have a, a third or a, another new actor that is actively involved in preventing terrorism or extremism or violence which is the tech sector and traditionally technology companies like facebook like twitter like google uh, microsoft they haven't at all have, a, have had nothing to do really uh with extremist groups like these were not the people who moderate content and follow and become experts on those kinds of things but today they're definitely involved they're actively involved in monitoring and creating policy um uh, and uh and i think this is really just fascinating to see if you look at uh how much our world has changed such that we have private companies who fight terrorism you know who would have thought that would happen like 20 years ago mm-hmm. and we could probably spend another podcast just talking about the dilemmas that arise if we want private actors to regulate free speech um, to increase uh, public security. I have one more specific question because I guess we, we really can't address all of this in, in the rest of the podcast. I was wondering, are there specific initiatives not only to um, prevent radicalization online, but to specifically use social media to de-radicalize? Yes, so there are uh, some quite innovative uh, initiatives, uh, really some creative ones, Uh, and uh, we don't know for sure how effective they are kind of if you look at like at the at the individual level so if somebody is exposed to them like what happens to them a year or two years down the road we don't have that kind of data yet but we do have uh, interventions for example that use the same tactics that ISIS has been using essentially targeted marketing if you will um, that uh, that uh, essentially target, at risk uh, individuals and there are different ways to identify them uh, with content that is called like counter narratives uh, content that essentially looks like propaganda disseminated by groups like ISIS and others but it actually says the opposite and in many times it, it would be interviews with former extremists um, and stuff like that and what they, they these interventions are trying to do is to kind of uh, make the marketplace of ideas more diverse, if you will. So if somebody is interested in extremism, then they can also see the counterpoint of why extremism is 
uh, you know, is incorrect or flawed or harmful. Um, and that, that's one type of intervention where, where that we are seeing. And then, of course, another one is the, this kind of takedown approach or the redirect approach, uh, which would be that if you are or me, you know, are interested in an extremist group and we kind of go and Google that group or try to see how we can connect to it, then, um, actively, uh, this, uh, this is really happening now a lot is this redirect method where what you will find in your search results would not be what you really look for, but would be that kind of alternative content or the narratives that, you know, try to pull you away from that. So I think these are really creative approaches. Um, I'm looking to see whether how much they really are effective because on the aggregate, um, we do not see a decline in extremism, even though they have, they have been around for a few years. Uh, so yeah, I think that's a still an open question, but there definitely are intervention. Great. Tamar, we're already coming to an end of the podcast. Um, there's a final question that I always ask the guests on the podcast, and that is for reading recommendations. One piece of political science and another maybe non-academic piece. Yeah, so I'll I'll start with uh, with a non-academic piece. Um, and I think that kind of if we go back to what we talked about earlier uh, on what is happening in in Europe and, you know, what has been happening, you know, this kind of link between hostility and, uh, and extremism. There was a really great journalist that uh, created the documentary. Uh, her name is Mariana Van Zeller, and she created a documentary called um, Radicals Rising. And in that documentary, she illustrates with uh, a lot of really interesting footage the same patterns that my study shows with with a lot of data, essentially. And I, if somebody, whoever is listening and is interested in in kind of learning more about these mechanisms and these patterns, I highly recommend her documentary. It's it's free online and uh, and you can find it easily. Um, in terms of an academic piece, um, one piece I recently read that I really liked uh, was Salma Musa's paper on how to improve uh, cooperation and intergroup, uh, kind of intergroup cooperation between Christians and Muslims in uh, post-ISIS Iraq. And uh, she has this, this, this has been recently published in Science. And this is a really nice study that shows how, you know, on the backdrop of everything we talked about, there's still ways to uh, to make us work together, you know, across different religions, across different backgrounds. And her study shows that uh, making individuals from different religious backgrounds play together on a soccer team uh, increases their positive attitudes towards each other and cooperation a few months later. But she does not find that this actually happens beyond the soccer context. But I think it's still really interesting and illustrates some of the interventions we might think about uh, to make us all less hateful towards each other and work together more, which is kind of ultimately what I hope for the most. Yes, and I actually listened to her talk about her work uh, on a podcast that's called Scope Conditions, which is a new political science podcast that I can also warmly recommend because there is, of course, room for lots of political science podcasts. And so I can recommend it to listeners of this podcast as well. Thank you, Tamara. It was really a great conversation and I've uh, learned a tremendous lot. And also thank you, everyone, for listening. I hope you enjoyed the podcast.